you're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at amazon.com slash instant eraser foundation. Welcome to the ID10T podcast number 937. Um, I think we're just going to jump right to the corkboard. Oh, can I promote like a silly little thing? Of course. <laughs> I've, been posting, I've been renovating this, renovating the house, and I've been posting with the hashtag house shit because <laughs> I just want to document it. And, um, and I set up a whole, people are asking me a lot about it. And so we, Lydia and I had a, had a Pinterest page where we were just like pinning stuff back and forth for just like inspirational yeah. stuff. So I'm just, I'm just Hardwick on Pinterest and you can just see it's the house shit thing there. If anyone cares, I don't know if anyone's, if you're not watching it, don't worry about it. But I just post these Instagram stories almost every day about the progress of the rent, the house renovation. Cause I just, I love house renovation and I love renovation shows and, uh, <laughs> and it's a good way for me to document it. So I've been doing that. And, uh, that's my, that's my dumb little plug. Awesome. Uh, Tanya Dapke writes, I am co-leader and board member for 500 Women Scientists. Our mission is to serve society by making science open, inclusive, and accessible. We are currently trying to raise money for a great organization called Ciencia Puerto Rico. Local pods will be presenting science salons to raise money. You can find more info by going to 500womenscientists.org. And they're going to have events. Uh, the salons are kind of like talks and, and women, you know, scientists get together. So they sound really cool. Uh, they'll have uh, they'll have some in, in Corvallis, Oregon, Washington D.C., Philadelphia, Anchorage, Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, also you can find out more info about Ciencia Puerto Rico by going Ciencia, and that's C I E N C I A P R dot org. And then also John Garcia writes, I started doing my own thing inspired by many people, including Chris, a, for, a few years ago, drawing a new sketch every single day. This practice has led to many different opportunities for me, and I'm forever grateful. My art can be found at rockerjohn.com, and that's R-O-K-R-J-O-N, uh, or on Instagram at R-O-K-R-J-O-N underscore he donates proceeds of everything he sells to various charities so uh his stuff is really cool so go check him out excellent uh this episode is david oyelowo who is an incredible actor um maybe you saw him as a dr martin luther king jr in selma uh for instance but great 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 actor and uh turned out to be a hell of a nice guy that was a this is a really i remember this conversation and thinking like god why does it have to end? <laughs> yeah, he came ready to go. Uh, he was he was he was great. Uh, he's promoting Gringo, which is uh, opening March 9th. Joel Egerton is that is in that. Um, uh, Charlize Theron, 
Um, it, uh, it's great. I saw it. It's it's comedy. It's fucked up. It's great. <laughs> oh, and Charlton Copley. Oh, he's, who, he's so great. Who was on the podcast a few years ago for Hardcore Harry. His American accent is crazy. Really? It's so good. I've never heard him talk any other way. Yeah, it's good. So it's good. Yeah, he's South African, but his American yeah. accent is, is pretty fantastic. And David's huh. great in it, too. So go see Gringo, March 9th. This episode brought to you by Beachbody On Demand, which is an online fitness streaming service that gives you unlimited access to a, ver- a huge variety of highly effective world-class workouts personalized to meet your needs. Um, as I've said before, I, I use the, I do work with a trainer, you know, Tom, mm-hmm. of the Pro U podcast. Uh, but, you know, if I'm traveling or if, like, Tom's not available or whatever or I just want to do, like, maintenance work, I, I use this app in between just to do, like, quick – there's, like, these great 10-minute workouts. There are really – you know, there are more intense workouts. They have, like, P90. They have yoga. Um, it, it really is a fully comprehensive app. To give you pretty much anything that you would need uh, for a workout. It's cheaper than a gym. You don't need a ton of equipment. You can for... do it on your own time. Absolutely. Uh, there's cardio. There's weight training. There's yoga. There's low impact. There's even dance. Um, there's over 600 workouts. You can sort by workout type or trainer. There's nutritional help on there. So give it a try. If you're even marginally interested in fitness, it's a great way to just look into it to see like, oh, may, I want to yeah. dip my toe in the water It's a good a way bit. to get into it. Just do those 10-minute workouts. Build yourself up. Right now, you can get a trial membership when you text ID10T to 303030. You're going to get full access to the entire platform for free. All the workouts and nutrition information for free. Just text ID10T to 303030. Also, Audible, Audible is great. Audiobooks for anything that you want, book-wise, that you want to put in your ears if you don't have time. It's very <laughs> difficult for me to sit down and read a book just because of my schedule. Yeah. Um, and because I'm in transit all the time, Stuck audiobooks. Stuck in traffic. It's yeah. perfect. <laughs> I just finished uh, Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday, and now I'm uh, listening to The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, which is really funny. Um, <laughs> but your books are yours to keep with Audible. You can go back and re-listen anytime, even if you cancel your membership. Uh, it's through your phone, through your car, from a tablet, a computer, uh, Amazon Echo. You can get through tons and tons and tons of books while doing almost anything. You can fill your time with your audio life with anything. <laughs> is it going to be the same playlist you listen to all the time or something entertaining? or something that you can learn. Audible is offering the listeners to the ID10T podcast free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Go to audible.com slash ID10T and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a free title and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash ID10T or text ID10T to 500-500 to get started today. Books, magazine and newspaper publishers, business information providers, broadcasters, entertainers, they got you covered. So thanks to Audible for sponsoring this episode of the ID10T Podcast, which is episode number 937. David Oyelowo, Katie, please roll the thing. Initiating ID10T Protocol. At the Black Panther premiere last night, but I just didn't want to come up and go, hey, you're going to be at my house tomorrow? So. <laughs> yeah, that man freaked me out. <laughs> a little bit. Out of context. Hey, um, um <laughs> want to out tomorrow? Uh, no. Uh, why, don't you why, leave, you, um, why don't you leave me alone? How great is that film? It's great. 
I mean, it, you know, the when I saw the Comic-Con footage last summer, yeah. The cast had only had just seen it for the first time during the panel and so mm. they were freaking out and the audience was freaking out mm-hmm. and everyone freaked out. They all es- it escalated each other's freakouts. And so I've been excited about that movie since then and it did not disappoint in no. any way. No, I know. That's that's the thing that I find extraordinary is the fact that uh there's a lot of pressure, a lot riding. And with every one of these Marvel movies that does well, it puts pressure on the next one, you know, because <laughs> I've, I've never seen a strike rate like it, yeah. uh, really. Especially in a, in a um, artistically maligned, if you like, set of movies. You, you kind of, if you're a aficionado, you're, you're sort of waiting for the bubble to burst. Sure. You know. But you know what 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 Ryan and the cast and everyone involved has done is not just, in my opinion, make the best Marvel movie yet, but also something that has a cultural vibrancy and a social commentary that speaks to the now in a way that is you'd be doing well to do that in any movie, absolutely, let alone a superhero movie. Well, I think that's one of the yeah. reasons that Marvel. I think it's a formula that they've really cracked in terms of getting really talented directors mm-hmm. and allowing those directors to make a film that's really their point of view, mm. but somehow still fit into this greater universe I know. of a bunch of different directors with point with their points of view. And so you're not getting... It would have been so dangerously easy for every movie to feel cookie cutter and like, right. now this hero and this hero. Right. And, you know... Thor 3 was brilliant and totally different from Guardians, which is totally different from Black Panther, which is totally yeah. different from Ant-Man. I mean, and so there, there's, a real, there, there's a real conversation happening, a real creative conversation happening around these. Very, and it's, very much so. And what, what Black Panther is, I mean, it's just, it's, it's extraordinary. I mean, I, you know. I, I almost, know. you know, my wife ended up having to find out that her shooting schedule shifted, so she had to work. We found out like two days before the premiere, so she wasn't able to go. And I'm like, oh, man, am I really going to go this thing by myself? And I was like, you know what? I got to go. Right. And I'm so glad I did because I was excited. Not only was I excited to see the movie, but seeing it with that audience yeah. was so explosive. Oh, my goodness. It was just such a it was such an incredible I've theatrical ne- I've experience. I've never been anything quite like that. The energy was just extraordinary. Um, anyway. But that was what, quite, quite, quite the night. But I'm glad you didn't introduce yourself as such because uh, my wife was with me and she would have asked questions and it would have been a whole thing. <laughs> Why are you at this guy's house tomorrow? <laughs> it, it's so hard to explain. It's sort of like a, it's like a recorded conversation. I don't honestly, I don't know either. I don't know either. Yeah, it just you know, I I, I get to I can get kind of shy at those things because. E- you rarely ever think past the first thing that you're going to say to someone mm-hmm. where you go, Hey, I, I know you from this thing that I saw you in, or I know, and you don't really ever think, well, what's the other person supposed to say? Oh, right. okay, great. You know, like I, right. I don't, I just feel bad bothering people. So yeah. I just didn't, I, 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 I hate you. I hate you. <laughs> I hate you. Good choice. Do you ever, uh, do you ever go up to people at these things and say anything? Um, well, at, at a, a premiere. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's got to the point now for me, wonderfully, whereby people have seen my work, and so people who I really admire, you you hover 
uh, in in the anticipation of getting to speak to them, and then they go, "Oh, I saw your this that," and, the, and I, I'm always thrown by by that. So, um, so yes, I think I think of course I do, but but now there's sort of this weird added element that I, I always get thrown away <laughs> from people. I mean, you're in pretty big yeah. movies now. It's not that. And you're on a pretty big British series, too. So it's not a really shape yeah, that's Yeah, but when you're just living your own life, and I, I, I personally do not, uh, I don't go to a bunch of those things. Right. And, uh, you know, my wife and I live in Tarzana, quite far away from all the, the noise yeah. uh, with our kids. And uh, so you... you you do your work, but you're not sitting in every living room seeing if they're watching it or not. You're not in every movie theater. It's quite hard. And the thing is now, sometimes you'll do a film that'll do okay in theaters, but it'll have a robust life on planes. Of course. Or, or on Apple TV or on Netflix or... You know, someone was telling me the other day, which I wasn't aware of, but on MLK Day, four different channels literally played Selma on a on a basic cycle all day. Yeah. I mean, all day. So, you know, people who may not have seen it three years ago when it came out, they would have been oppressed by it on four different channels <laughs> on MLK Day. So, you know, I think it's things like that that you're not necessarily aware of that, that heighten awareness and, and it, yeah, it, it throws me. You know? Well, it also because it, I mean, listen, just the idea of playing Martin Luther King is, of course, I imagine it was probably exciting, but terrifying at the same time. Was there any part where you go, okay, I really cannot mess the, this really, I really need to stick the landing on this. Well, you feel that way on virtually Every movie you do, especially when it's playing a a real person, let alone someone of historical significance. I have to say, one of the blessings in terms of playing Dr. King was that I'm not African-American. And so, therefore, I didn't quite have the cultural uh, weight, you know, having, for instance, grown up with... My grandparents having Dr. King, JFK, and Jesus on the wall in, right. in, in a line together. I didn't, I didn't have that. I, of course, understand who he is, what he means. But, you know, the equivalent for me as a Christian would be like, okay, go play Jesus. Oh, my God. Uh, I am not so sure about that. Um, and so, um, so and, and that helped with, you know, any kind of humanizing I was able to do of him because I, I, I don't think you can play an icon. You can play a human being who attains iconic status, but you can't approach them as, a, as this important character. That, that's, that's never going to be the truth of them. I'm curious because this is just something I noticed having, you know, spent, spent some time in, in England. But uh, how many has anyone in an interview go, said, so as an African-American, you're like, uh, I'm actually... Uh, <laughs> so, uh, all the time. <laughs> all the time. And how do you... <laughs> well, well, you understand where it's coming from. And, and you, it, it's... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of what that phrase actually means. But, you know, the odd thing is I've now become an American of citizen. Course. Of course. So, so it's, it's sort of... Uh, well, I, I get, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I, I have African heritage, you know, I'm Nigerian and I'm now legally American. So it's not as 
ridiculous <laughs> as it as it once was but uh but yeah no that that hap- that happens all the time um uh, there's a there's a a phrase we you know i'm a, i'm an african american Oh, is, oh, is, is, gotcha. is, is what I actually, uh, I think that, that's, that's a phrase we should introduce to the culture. But, uh, but, but yeah, that happens all the time. I think I, I heard, this must have been, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 years ago, I was in London and an American said this to a, a black British person and it said something about an African American. He was like, we're black, mate. You know, it was, like, it, was not, like, it was just like, how dare you suggest we're American? What is wrong? And the American was so flustered because they were trying so hard to, like, oh, no, I didn't. I was just trying to, oh, no. You know. I've been called an African-American Brit before. Oh. Which, oh, is, which, is, which is also very odd. Um, but at least they're trying. At least, at least there is a, an acknowledgement. Yeah. There is a truth of an acknowledgement there. And your kids yeah. are 100% American? Like, they were raised in America? Two of them. Got it. Uh, two of my kids um, were born in the UK before we moved here, and then and then two of them were. One was born here in LA. The other was born in Pittsburgh, of all places. Well, so what does that do? So are your kids' citizenships divided, or are they? Do they all? If, how does that work? Well, when my wife and I became citizens, they. Got oh, of it, course. Got it automatically, but they effectively all have dual citizenship. So they have British oh, passports fantastic. as well as American passports. So we have our get out of jail free card, <laughs> basically. Yeah. My wife uh, found out that she is eligible for um, a dual Irish citizenship. Uh huh. So I'm trying to get her. I'm trying to get her on that. Like, okay. come on, let's just. Our our kids will have a, a a key to go wherever they. It's a good thing to have, you know. Keep your options open, but no, it's. I mean, it's a, It's it's very very nice, just from an identity point of view. Just to, I mean, you know, I feel like a citizen of the world, really, because I I identify as Nigerian, I identify as British, I now identify as American, especially as I'm raising kids who identify as I'm American, and and I think that's kind of a a great thing. Well, if you, I, I was. If, if you grow up in America, part of the reason why I think we can be viewed as a little um, self-centered is because our landmass is so huge mm. and we're so, you know, effectively <laughs> cut off right. from so much of the world. But then, you know, you go to London or you go to other parts of Europe and it, like you just see so much. I mean, if you live in co- coastally, you see a lot of different cultural, uh, just uh, cultural engagement. But over there, it's like people speak multiple language and they understand multiple cultures because you don't have to very go very far to be mm. in another country. Exactly. And so I always, I was a little jealous about that because I, it's, you know, I've known so many people as Americans that have said like, well, what do I need to travel for? Like, mm. because you don't, you just travel and then you'll understand why you need to travel. But I think it's also a byproduct of America being very good at selling the idea of America being the best. Right. America being the most powerful nation in the world, being the number one this. I mean, even the fact that, you know, the World Series uh, for a sport and a sporting event that pretty much only happens in America <laughs> is is indicative of, of you know... The, propagating this idea of the center of the world is America. And so I think that it's also that when you think... 
and it's such a big country, you can ski, you can go to the beach, you can climb the mountains, right. you can be in the desert. You, you know, it does, it does have everything, but it doesn't have, you know, the culture that you get to experience elsewhere. And that is one of the things I really appreciated about living in such a small country like the, the, the UK and England specifically is because you felt the need to leave and see other things because, uh, you know, cabin fever is something you would feel. I felt anyway, just living in that small country. And so it's something for my wife and I with our kids, we've been quite conscious to make sure they're not growing up as those sort of inward looking Americans, but, but outward looking. Well, so if America is kind of seen as the you know, holding up the foam finger that says number one on it, yes. you know, what, how would you describe, like, what is, what is British pride entail? Cause I feel like there's a little, it can be a little complicated because I feel like culturally Brits are a, a little more like, no, no, I don't want to stand out. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> you know, and obviously not for everybody, but there is that whenever someone tries to stand out, everyone's kind of like, shut up, you fucking cut. You know, it almost seems like, who do you think you are? You know, they're almost yes. like. Well, that's a, that's a byproduct of the class system of know your place, but also you're, you're, you're looking at a post empiric. Britain, you know, Great Britain is a little bit of false advertising these days, I, th- I think. Sure. You know, uh, uh, Britain is no longer a country that somehow hoodwinked the world into uh, being so pervasively colonized by it. Mm-hmm. Um, and effectively, Britain is kind of the 51st state in some ways now. So, so you know, where, where does Great Britain lie in the grand scheme of things? I don't know, but I do know that there's a self-deprecating, borderline self-loathing kind of attitude as it pertains to once having been great and now not commanding quite as much power, but you still have the vestiges of what (laughs) that once was. You got a palace. You you know, exactly. (laughs) You know, um, uh, so it's a, it's, it's a, it's a complicated, it's a complicated thing as borne out by the uh, relationship that Great Britain has with America. I mean, I tell you, there's, you know, there's almost no greater seed for comedy than self-loathing. It is some of the best (laughs) comedy comes out of self-loathing. Yes. Well, we we do that well in the UK. <laughs> what uh, what were some of your favorite British comedies growing up? What did you watch? Oh, um, th- there was a, a show called Some Mothers Do Have Them. Oh, I've heard uh, that. Yeah. yeah, that that with Frank Spencer, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I I used to love that. Um, hello, hello. When I was growing up, was a was another one. But you know, more recently, Ab Fab is a is a great piece of. Um, self-loathing <laughs> slash self-aggrandizing uh, uh, comedy. But, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, we, 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 we do those. We do those well. I mean, because I, I was finally able to get the system to play, so I got to watch Gringo. Uh, and you're great in it. And it, and it's, and, but it, but it's a, it is like a caper comedy. It's yeah. like a real – so do you sort of look at projects – and say like, well, I just did something that was heavy. I kind of want to do something more light now. Or do you say, I'll do, I'll, I'll just green light the projects as they come my way. It's a bit of both. I mean, sometimes something comes along that is so undeniable that you just have to do it, regardless of whether 
you think you may be accused of having done something similar recently or or this is the kind of thing you're known for you know sometimes if you're blessed enough to have that you 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 you'll have a quick succession of things that may be deemed similar but you know with gringo in particular i i did want to do something a bit different but also this script came along that was very much conceived in terms of the character I play as not being someone who looks like me or, or is like me. And, but there was just something in it that I responded to. And as I started having conversations with Nash Edgerton, who directed it, the idea of playing this, this hapless everyman as a Nigerian immigrant who firmly believes in the American dream and what goes on to happen to him as a result, um, just felt like a rich and fresh way into this particular story, this particular kind of caper that, you know, not dissimilar to what we were just saying about Black Panther and its cultural and sociopolitical resonance is that, you know, what, what, what does... What does being an immigrant to this country mean now? What does believing in the American dream mean now? What does capitalism mean now for someone who believes that they can come to this country and make headway and to see that dream be so severely pummeled <laughs> as, as is the case for Harold. You know, that just felt like something, uh, something interesting to explore. He said something really, I mean, with, I don't want to, I'm not going to spoil too much, but he says, your character says something really interesting in there, which I think a lot of people feel, which is ultimately he expresses this idea of like, I'm, he basically gets fucked for just doing his job. Right. Like he's trying – it's the guy who's trying to do the right thing yeah. in his personal life and his professional life. And every time he does the right thing – and I guess it is sort of – both in his personal life and professionally, there is sort of a capitalist thing that happens yes. that just ends up fucking him over. Yes. You know? And it, yes. and it is that sort of idea of like I don't – I thought I was supposed. I thought you're supposed to like do good things and do good work, and then good things happen. What is yeah. what is this? Yes, yeah, no, exactly right. I think most people, generally speaking, believe that if you're a good person and if you treat people well and if you work hard at what you do, good things should follow. But in a capitalist society, <laughs> um, at its zenith, at its height, and the the dark underbelly of the American dream is trampling on heads to sure. get to where you want to get to. Right. I mean, that's the truth of the matter. <laughs> there, is, there is a pure side to it and there is a very dark side, which I would argue has been more prevalently embraced than, 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 than you know, what the asp aspirational elements sure. of the American dream. And so, you know, I think to look at that through the eyes of someone who is lacking in cynicism, maybe... Um, unwisely so, but still admirably so, is is to kind of really, um, I think, is is the way to look at a true everyman. Um, and so, you know, and I'm I'm the son of immigrants. My my parents emigrated to the UK. I have emigrated here with my family. So I know what it is to come to a a new place full of hope. And to have some of those hopes dashed, to have the true nature of that place reveal itself to you and to have to navigate that. I mean, it is interesting. So you almost have to remind people sometimes like, hey, uh, Homo sapien sapien didn't start on this continent. You know, it's like right. everyone 
you know, everyone, most of the people who are here now, their families or they came over at some point. Right. And everyone, you know, I've done the ancestral family tree. I know every part of, you know, Europe that my family came over from and became hillbillies in the South, you right. know. Right. And so it's, you know, my mother's side was Italian. The Italians came over and they had a rough time in New York in the early 1900s. And right. So it just seems like you don't, no one really has to go that far back to to really have some type of an immigration story on on their hands. But we forget that. We forget that when we become the dominant culture anywhere. And so and and that's part of what tribalism is. You know, it's a, it's a very human thing that once you gain numbers, once you gain power, once you gain an empire and it looks predominantly like a certain demographic, that becomes the dominant culture and anyone and everyone else who is not that dominant culture is a threat to the survival of the dominant culture. Yeah. And uh, you know, and look, we are facing that <laughs> squarely in this country right now, which again is why for me, when I read the script and it made me really laugh, as it was, I just thought, oh, there's an, there's an extra layer we can add here that hopefully is going to resonate in a more potent way. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is kind of interesting that it, it it's, and in some cases, it almost seems like the, the privilege aspect comes from the fact that parts of the dominant culture don't realize that they're the part of the dominant. I think they just, there's just like an, uh, not a malevolent in all cases ignorance, but just kind of a general ignorance. Oh, it's willful. You know, the, the survival of the dominant culture is incumbent upon forgetting that it was a struggle and that there were people crushed in order to gain dominance, in order that your supremacy is unquestioned and unquestionable. So, you know, the idea that you were once the scrappy Irishman or the scrappy <laughs> Italian or the whatever doesn't chime with the idea that you are head honcho. Right. Um, and, and it also enables you to treat other people badly because you know to to remember what it was like doesn't serve the narrative and and enable you to sleep well in your bed knowing that you are doing to others what was effectively done to your grandparents sure but it's all just fear i mean it's all just fear it's all just fear based you know it's yeah. it, i mean i would imagine a lot of it's fear based of like oh no what if i you know i i i need to survive i need to and not sort of putting the right data points in place and being like, well, you can survive with that. You don't, it doesn't have to be that way. You know, right. like you could survive. Everyone can survive. Why can't right. everyone have a piece of this? Why can't everyone have role models and everyone have people to look up to and dreams to, you know, I mean, it, but it's also about power and, and I would argue fear of mortality. I think you are able to stave off the idea of death if you feel powerful, if you feel king of the hill. Oh, it's an illusion. You know, it's an, it's a complete illusion. <laughs> and again, you know, everything we're saying is about a string of lies that you you have to tell yourself in order to get out of bed and feel like you can get through the day when it comes to, you know, a notion of the dominant culture. But these lies are things that you know, need to be debunked, I think, in order to, to be our best selves. I mean, I would ask you, because you, uh, I know you were born in 76. Yes. I was born in 71. And, and I'm, I'm curious, 
If you, you know, did you have sort of a crisis where you felt the fear of mortality? But then I also think, well, you have four kids. Right. So you're, most of your energy is probably, <laughs> when you're not working, is probably somewhere in that, in that region. It is sucked. <laughs> is, that's the word you're, you're looking for. <laughs> Completely and utter parasitically sucked from my every marrow into my four seedlings. Um, yes, you would be right. In, the future. In, 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 you would be right in saying that. Um, yes, yeah, it, it, it is. Um, but nothing really brought my own men- mortality to the fore in the way, you know, my mother passed last year and that, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. Thank you. But that, that'll do it. You know, when, when, when someone really close to you and someone who, you know, is the buffer between you being next as it were. Right. Um, that, that really sort of, sort of bring, brings it, brings it to light, but it also gives you an incredible gift, which is that you face each day, debunking having debunked the lie that you're going to live forever and the fact that you need to plow as much as you can of goodness into your children because your day too will come sometimes earlier than you even anticipate so you know it's it's a very bittersweet thing to have your mortality right in front of you but you know it boy does it make you make each day count all the more. Well, yeah. I mean, as a, as a member of uh, the same club who's lost a parent, I know that, you know, there, there are two very significant stages of that mortality awakening. The first one is when you're an adult and then you realize like, oh, my parents are not like super beings. They're just people who right. got pregnant and had right. a kid. They're just people, humans. Right. And because uh, you didn't see them before you were able to recognize who they were. So of you course. don't have a concept of that. Yeah. That's the first one. And then when you lose them, you're like, oh, well, OK, wait, yeah. this is real. This is real. And I really better try to make this count. Yes. You know, yes. and especially in the case when you have when you have four kids, I imagine you must have to sort of console them while at the same time trying to figure out how to process your own grief. Well, it's a funny thing because, yes, there's a degree of consolation, but you're also watching the fact that they are still in the headspace of immortality. Sure. You know, they, they are... It, they are struggling to process the idea of the fact that they were, in fact, not even struggling. You can see that they're not fully able to engage with the idea that they will at one, at some point not be here. You know, I have two teenage boys and as teenage boys tend to do, they throw themselves around and they do things that clearly <laughs> are death defying <laughs> and things that i you know it's 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 a here's another thing that'll that'll help you you know confront your mortality is the amount of wheeled implements that my kids move around on whether it's a uh, a, a skateboard or a hoverboard or uh i mean there are so many two-wheeled things now that they are somehow find ways to move around on and when i go near them 
I've become my dad. You know, I have I have my hands out as if I'm walking on a tightrope. If I fall, it's almost definitely going to mean something's going to break. Yeah. Whereas they will fall a myriad of times. And sure. sort of, they seem to literally bounce back onto the two-wheeled um, implement. And, uh, you know, so so for them... That's the gift of youth, is that they, they, they shouldn't feel that yet. I remember when I did this film, Red Tales, about the Tuskegee Airmen. And, uh, you know, when we were doing the film, the Tuskegee Airmen, who were the first, um, or, or the African-American pilots who fought in the Second World War and flew um, P-52 planes and had uh, the most incredible uh, bomber escort record in the Second World War. The, the death-defying things they did in these sardine cans with wi- wings were inconceivable. And these guys were all in their 80s um, when we were doing the film. And you'd talk to them and say, how did you have the balls to get in a plane, do those maneuvers, shoot at people while being shot at? And they said, because we were kids. We honestly, by the time we crept into our late 20s, early 30s, there is nothing on earth that could make us get into one of those planes. Oh, my God. We were teenagers. We, 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 we just never thought we would get shot. Right. And, and so that's, you know, in, in essence, what I mean. There's something incredible about that feeling, which is why you are at the height of your abilities from a sporting point of view, from a, you know, the world is your oyster point of view when you have that degree of fearlessness. I wonder if it's the, I mean, there is definitely a line of demarcation of like pre-mortality and post-mortality and the pre-mortality is what you're talking, the mortality awareness, I guess, but the pre-mortality and post-mortality. And I, I remember not being afraid of anything, but then at some point, do you think it's just falling down a bunch in life and experiencing a lot of pain that starts to make you go, okay, maybe we better hit the brakes a little bit. Or do you think it's just something chemical that just starts to say like, all right, just so you know, we're going to have to start powering this shit down soon. So you better, you better protect, you know, what's left. I think it's an accumulation of pain that sticks. Uh You know, when my kids bounce back up, they don't really pay a price for having fallen over for whatever reason our bodies have been designed when we're younger to just you know partly because we fall in a more relaxed way because we haven't suffered a bunch of hurt so you you actually fall better but the more pain you accumulate the more brittle you are in relation to the falling (laughs) and the more the pain um, accumulates and therefore feels like something to avoid and uh, so I think it's I think it's that you know I know for a fact my wife and I for instance got married when we were very young she was 20 I was 22 and um, I, I just know that we avoided a lot of pain by virtue of the fact that we got married young and we hadn't accumulated a bunch of painful relationship experiences that we then transposed onto each other and into our marriage. I know that. I know that maneuver. Uh, Yeah. And it's a real thing. And it's not to say that there's anything wrong with waiting until you're a bit older to get married, but that is a byproduct of, of, of it is that, you know, you're bringing a bunch of stuff that, that makes you hesitant um, as you approach relationships. And, And that was something 
that we didn't have by virtue of still being kids when we got married. Well, it's interesting to hear you say that because it almost makes me think that life is sort of like a flea market or a junk shop. And you're just sort of going through just collecting stuff. And some of it's shitty. And some of it's like there's some gems in there, yeah. you know. But the further you go along, just the bigger that sack of stuff is on your back. Right. And you meet someone else at a certain point. You're like, here, I'm going to give you some of this shit. And you right. give me some of your shit. Right. We're going to combine some of this shit. And hopefully right. it's complimentary. Well, hopefully you've, <laughs> you've, you, you're self-aware enough to shed some of that stuff as well, you know, because I think bitterness, anger, um, pain, jealousy, you know, these are things that we can harbor. And if you're not self-aware enough to go that that's cancer, you know, sure. that that's going to make me ill mentally and physically. And I need to let it go. And I think people who do life the best and get through it the best are those who are mindful it's a bit like you know if you 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 after christmas you gained a bit of weight you kind of think in january you know what i i can either start a bit of a regime or i can go you know what I, this is this is fine with me let's just keep going and there's a price to pay yeah for that yeah it is under you know what that's the other part too is understanding consequences yeah is understanding that oh wait a minute actions do have some sort of a Newtonian thing that happens where there is a reaction of some something will occur as a response to this thing that I am doing. Yeah. And you just don't think of that, you know, when you're younger because you haven't had enough consequences to know that there are consequences. Exactly. That's how you're supposed to learn. Exactly right. I'm, uh, I would love to know as someone uh, who, uh, I'm not really a person of faith, but I know that you are. Mm. And so how, in, in, if this is not too personal a question, but in sort of processing the loss of a parent, in sort of processing all the things that you've been processing and then you know, still trying to remain stable as your career continues to rise. Mm. And that can be very weird. Mm. Success can be very strange. Mm. What What is it about, you know, um, what is it specifically about f- faith for you that kind of grounds you and, and how do you, how do you turn to it and how do you, how do you express it and, and be comforted by it? Well, in the case specifically of my mom passing away, you know, she, she was the person who introduced me to my faith as a Christian and not in any sort of dogmatic way. She was just a, a, a wonderful example of what it is to be a loving human being who loved Jesus Christ and lived her life in a sacrificial way, which is at the heart of it. You know, the, the Bible can be summed up in love God, love one another. And my mom really lived that. And I I admired her for it. And even though uh, at stages in my youth, I rebelled against it, I I mocked it, I laughed at it, I thought it was a bunch of nonsense. But I found it in my own way, because she was always a true north for me from that point of view. And then it, you know, Jesus became a, a true north for me when I established a relationship with him. And then the Bible sort of suddenly made sense to me in a way that it didn't when I was younger. I just felt, oh, I'm I'm reading it out of duty or whatever. And then when she, when she passed away in a moment where, and I've had this at different parts of different times in my life where I'm going through something very difficult, where all you want to do is run for the hills. All you want to do is curse God and and say, this is a load of nonsense. Why, Why has this happened to me? And Again, going back to uh, 
keeping the good stuff and ditching the bad stuff. <laughs> right, right. What I, what I have found from, in my life from a faith point of view, it's a bit like when you're, you, 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 you're disciplined enough to keep weight training, to keep your body strong. And it's not that you need it to be strong every day, but then suddenly a boulder comes toppling down onto you and you are shocked by the fact that you have the strength to withstand it. The strength not only to withstand it, but to lift it off of yourself and put it to the side and marvel at the fact that you got through it whole because you have spent time putting in the good stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's what it has been for me. My mum um no one prayed over the film selma in which i I played dr king more than her and she got a brain aneurysm two months before we started shooting oh jesus and so literally going into a um an event and i really mean that in the true sense an event in my life that she had been so alongside me in we went into the production of that film without her there, without her voice, without her prayers, without her support, without her presence. And it was the hardest thing imaginable, for me anyway, to go through such a mountain climbing slash mountain top experience, not only knowing that she wasn't there, but knowing that she was in a vegetative state. She, she was in a coma out of which she never really came out. I mean, she ended up effectively that way for three years before, before passing away, but it literally happened just before. And so if there was ever a moment where in my life, I just thought, what is that, God? What on earth is that? Um, it was that moment. But... I felt so held through the process. I felt the presence of God in every take, in every phone call with my dad after shooting uh, a day of going through the most extraordinary kind of ex experience I've ever had on a film set. And then the reality of the fact that my mom is still in this vegetative state. My dad is crumbling in the UK. My brothers don't know what to do. And I've got to go and learn my lines and get back on that set tomorrow morning. I was held through the process and, and a better person through the process than I could ever have imagined. And, you know, the Bible, there's, there's, a, there's a passage that talks about if you build your life on the rock, when the storms come, you will stand. If you build your life on the sand, when the storms come, you will fall. And that is the greatest indicator of that, that I have had. So, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say to you, I have a full sense of why that happened in the way it happened. But I do know that there is a definite version of that without my faith, without God in my life, without Christ as my rock, that would have been catastrophic and cataclysmic for me. That's incredible, and I, and I hope that it didn't. I hope that my question wasn't condescending in any way. It wasn't. No, it wasn't meant to quite, be. Quite, quite far from it. I've I've never actually 
told anyone that publicly. Um, but um, but yeah, no, it's, I don't feel that way about it. I'm I'm very I'm very happy to be open about my faith because it's it's something you know. I think in this country particularly, when you look at what's going on politically, and and the tribalism around faith, you know, where where in my opinion, people will put their political opinion as it aligns with faith over a relationship with God and, and, and what God actually says, as opposed to, you know, okay, there are certain policies that align up with my faith, so therefore I'm going to ignore incredible bad behavior as a result. You know, I think that faith, Christianity, true religion is 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 can get tarnished by all of that. And so for me, I, I have no problem talking about something that is incredibly efficacious and real in my own life if you know it's meaningful to anyone great if it's not it's just part of my experience and and who i am well and it's also it's just it's it's more of the idea of politics i really do believe politics ruins a lot of things because i you know i see politics as like well politics is the balance of power and sort of you know, infrastructures that have to control things mm-hmm. and sort of like what you said before about like, there's going to be a certain amount of stepping on heads, yeah. you know? And so when politics kind of gets in and tarnishes spirituality, mm. that's where, it, that's where it does kind of become impure and sort of muddy the water. And it's like, okay, well, you're not talking about a pure human experience or a pure, or pure, I don't know, transhuman experience or whatever you want to call it. But you're talking about, uh, what's best for your power, like what yeah. for you to be in power. And that's not the same. Those aren't the same. I mean, they, you might like this and you might like this, but that doesn't mean that those two are the same thing. Right. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, politics at its core could be defined as compromise. It is about uh, what am I going to give in relation to what I'm going to get in order to stay in power, in order to attain and sustain my power. And often the policies and how it actually affects human beings is sidelined in a bid to stay in power. And that fundamentally is not what certainly my faith is or what I deem to be the best of who we are as human beings. Um, You know, one of the things that the current Me Too movement in Hollywood, I think, has enabled us to talk about now is morality. And that's something that certainly in my industry has... and, And when you are... Um, in a world that is very liberal and and PC and um, leftist, if you like, um, which which my industry certainly is, uh, with a lot of good people who are very accommodating of people generally. But one of the things that can sometimes get eroded is the notion of right and wrong, Mm -hmm. the notion of morality. And when it comes to sexual harassment or sexual politics generally, you cannot, in my opinion, boil that down to what is legally right. permissible or not. Right. At some point, you have to just look at, was that the right thing to do? You have to look at it as human, the human questions, exactly. not the legal questions. Exactly. And that, to me, bleeds into politics, bleeds into... And I, I do make a distinction between faith and religion, because religion... 
you know, a little bit like politics can be about tribalism, can mm -hmm. be about a club as opposed to what it is for me, which is a relationship. Now, I go to church and I, uh, I'm i not going to say to you for one second, I don't have a tribe in terms of my non-denominational non church that I go to in North Hollywood. But more important to me than what denomination I am is my personal relationship with God and how that then manifests in my life. And so... I would say the same thing when it comes to politics. You know, how is morality playing into your politics? How is what is fundamentally right or wrong? Now, the difficult thing is reaching a consensus on what right. is right or wrong. Right. And I've had conversations with guys, especially now with the Me Too movement, the Time's Up movement, where there are blurred lines around what is right and what is wrong. For me, my right and wrong very much stems partly from my faith and what examples I see in the Bible and, and those I admire around me, what is morally right. And the, the line for me is very firm, you know, in terms of how you treat a woman, how you treat people in general, but it's blurry elsewhere. And I think that's understandable, but it can sometimes be problematic. Well, whenever, yeah, I mean, I think it, if, if more people could stop and really truly ask themselves, is this a human decision I'm making is this, does this fall within <laughs> a generally agreed upon morality mm. and not just what can I get away with right? or what feels good to me right now or what's good for my ego? I, you know, I think the older I get, the more I sort of realize ego decisions are the fucking worst decisions right? because they're the sort of that lizard part of your brain. They're the most selfish ones. Absolutely. Like, Oh, what's good for me right now. And sometimes, you know what you should, I, I think it's important to make the distinction between making decisions that are positive for yourself and loving yourself right. and not making decisions that put yourself at the expense of other people's happiness. A hundred percent. I mean, for me, love, the definition of love for me is self-sacrifice. And ego, which is self-love, is the opposite of love, of loving someone. You know, my the best of me in my marriage is when I am perpetually putting my wife before myself. Mm -hmm. If she is doing the same for me, then by osmosis, we are in a very healthy relationship. The minute it becomes about what do I get out of this? What about me? That's a, a vicious cycle that if we're both doing that, you know, it's, 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 it's a downward spiral. And so... That of course, I am not going to lie to you and say that's my every day, sure. and that's and that's the way I approach life every day. But that is definitely the best of me when I am able to both consciously, inherently, innately, able to put others before myself. That's when the ego is being sidelined, and you're not making that. It's not the lizard part of your brain, <laughs> which is uh, in, in operation. Yeah, well, and people should listen to you because you've been married for 20, 21 years now? 20 years this year. 20 years this year. Congratulations. Thank you. And uh, and also, a lot of that sort of ego work is, I imagine, also incredibly valuable for your craft. Oh, boy. Because how do you, you have to go in and, and embody these characters and, you know, and very culturally important characters. And then, but even, even in a movie like Gringo, which is sort of like, oh, it's fun, you know, it's sort of a fun, silly. It's still, you, I would, I would get, would you say that you cannot go into these projects as like, 
what feels good for David, you know? Like, you really kind of need to surrender yourself. Well, it's the hardest thing to do in my profession because you, as an actor, are your product. That's what you're selling. So there is an inherent self-obsession that is both engendered from without and within. Your agents, your publicists, the audience, the critics, everyone is talking about you in relation to your project. And the thing that you are trying to avoid if you are going to be a loving, outward-looking person (laughs) is not focus on you, what you look like, what people think of you, whether you gave a good performance, whether you're on the upswing or the downswing or the, the, you know, and, and yet everything as an actor, both in terms of you being the one in front of the camera, you being in the one on that big screen, you being the one that hopefully people are talking about in relation to a film and whether it was good or not, doesn't help um, with having an ego that is not overblown. Mm -hmm. And so there is a lot of conscious, intentional work certainly in my life, to be done and not to be sucked into that. And the way I have found to do it, well, one of the the blessings that doing theater gives you is that that is a form of storytelling that at its in its purest form is an act of service because you you have a situation whereby your safety net is the other actors on that stage. If anyone else didn't do their work, freezes on their lines and and makes you stood there in front of hundreds of people <laughs> with nothing to do but wait for your cue, that's a, a terrible situation. But you are that for them as well. So theater at its core is an act of service to the director, to the play, to your fellow actors, and ultimately to the audience. And I think that if you come up in theater, that's a, a great way to dilute some of what film does to you when it comes to the, to the to the ego because night after night it is work you are not you can be a movie star and barely you know you can have a great editor who strings together a good performance you can have you can be someone who's really good looking and people don't care what comes out of your mouth and you're just you're just happy to watch that person you know but you cannot be on a stage without the audience letting you know whether you told them the truth or not and so for wow. me Going back to the theater is a means of getting back to zero, but also having the muscle memory of what it is to serve the audience is something that I try to carry into my film work. Again, I don't succeed all the time, but boy, does it help. It's so funny because I was just thinking, as you're talking about theater, I'm thinking like, there's no close-ups in theater. Right. It's like you're part of a group. And I think everything that we're sort of talking around is just the idea of, you know, to be a good citizen of humanity means contribution. You know, when you're in a, when you're in a group and you rely on other people, as much as they can't forget your lines, you can't, you can't fuck them over. Exactly. And so the more you're contributing to the group, the better everything is. The more you're contributing in your work environment to not step on people's heads. Right. And maybe just to do things because it makes other people happy or they're the right things to do. Or, you know, it doesn't, you know, it's a, People on the podcast are probably bored listening to me talk about 
that I've been sober forever. But but one of the things that I didn't really learn until quite recently, like 14 or 15 years in, was just the idea of like, it's not all about you, and right. it's bet, and it, it takes so much pressure off when you when you stop thinking like, oh, it's about me. People mm. are talking about me. They're doing it's like, nah. No, no, no. They really are not. They don't give a shit. They don't give <laughs> a shit. They're, they're and really that's not. really comforting. Yeah. And it's really nice to think that you can you can contribute something to other people that you don't get anything out of other than the fact that they're they're happier. Their day is better because you weren't you went out of your way to not be a dick. You know what's really difficult about that in relation to my profession is that there are moments where everyone is talking about you. Of course. And those moments are so intoxicating. Of course. And therefore, ultimately debilitating that to have the presence of mind to put that in the right bucket at the right time is the difficult thing, which is why success very early can be incredibly dangerous. Oh, because yeah. Because you just, you just don't, you're not equipped. You're not equipped to know actually. When we're here on this podcast saying no one really is is talking about you and you open every newspaper <laughs> because your movie opened last night to a hundred million dollar weekend. Sure. Actually, you old guys talking on the podcast, that's not true. I am the bees. It's fleeting. It's fleeting. <laughs> and, it's... You, and you can kill yourself chasing it. <laughs> exactly. You can kill yourself chasing it. And it also yeah. creates a hierarchy. The business creates a hierarchy that sort of preys upon, you know, the weaknesses that our egos have. I mean, you know, sure. 100%. How many times have you been to premiere and, you know, there's someone a little more famous than you on the carpet in front of you. And you go, well, that's dumb. Why would I care? And it's like everyone, you're like, oh, hey, I'm over here. I mean, you can't help but feel a little hum- human. Yeah. And there is something biological about that where you're like, oh, I want to be, you know, I have a, I have a need for significance. Oh, I, last night you and I were both at the Black Panther premiere. And I, my wife and I arrived and um, I've done, I've worked with Disney. I did a film called Queen of Cartway for them. So there was this long line to get onto the red carpet. And one of the publicists who had worked with on Queen of Cartway saw me and went, oh, David, David. Oh, come on, come. Let's, let's expedite this. <laughs> Took me right to the front of the, of the queue just, you know, to, to, to be able to hit the red carpet, get off. And my wife and I can go get our popcorn and sit down. And so, you know, we were feeling ourselves as we walked past everyone and went to the front sure. of the line. And we got to the front of the line. And the guy who was there to introduce people onto the carpet went, Hasselhoff! Oh, shit! <laughs> man, come on, man! Come on! And, and... <laughs> having, having... He been, was Knight Rider, though. He was Knight Rider, and he is the Hoff. He's the Hoff. But... <laughs> I gotta tell you, man, we had we had gone past all these people, were right there, and just before we got to the moment where we felt like king and queen of Wakanda, hey, Hasselhoff, man, it's been a lot. Come on over. Could you guys step it back? The Hoffs coming. Oh, literally, I, I would be happy if he said, "Could you step on back?" I just I just had a hand in my face oh, no. as I was as I was sort of uh, scraped aside for the that Hoff. went to so much fun. Replace replacement. I thought, that, I, thought, I thought the lesson was going to sort of be like you're going to the front of the line and and not and not remembering like no, but I'm a mere citizen of humanity. I'm here to contribute at the front of the line. At the front of the line. At the front of the line. I, I, I did the 
line, I think uh, Daniel Kaluuya was right in front of me. Right. And so it's like he could not, I mean, like he's amazing and he mm-hmm. could not be, you know, like more on, on top. Right? Is he, right. He can't even feel bad about, you know, it's like, of course he's going to get, of yes. course. Yes. But there is that, you know, it's like. Those little li- the little lizard brains are still like, what about me? Yeah, you know? I know. <laughs> so exactly. How do you you know? How do you sort of balance the the need for significance? And I don't think it's all bad. I mean, I think it it, it can be motivating. It, yeah. it can be part of the thing that drives us to do better, to do good, even be significant in your giving to other people is a, a form of significance as well. Well, you know what? Life is going to do it to you anyway (laughs) right do you know what i mean just the moment you think you are the bee's knees david hasselhoff that's right jump the line he's got some beesier knees he's he does Mm -hmm. and 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 that you know you're either going to go into a a a downward spiral of 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 self-loathing or you're going to see it for what it is and go Okay. Oh, that's that's funny, and, and 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 that just happened. Let's keep it moving. Do, do, do you know what I mean? I think I think you can you can approach the same situation in two different ways. I mean, it is it's funny hearing you say that because you know the where I where we were all sitting. I was maybe four rows before five rows behind you. Right. And up up top in there was. You know, every Marvel director. I know. It was incredible. There was you. I saw Ava DuVernay. I saw uh, uh, Donald Glover and Lawrence yeah. Fishburne. Yeah. And then a tiny little David Hasselhoff walking into the orchestra stage. <laughs> <laughs> like, what did he? Come on. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, in that case, it's sort of like, well, you know, he's, he's still around. What do you want? You I know, I know. exactly. exactly. Gotta... And trust me, David Hasselhoff had his own David Hasselhoff. Hasselhoff moment he, yes. last oh, night as well, you know, and and that's that's the thing, you know. I just I just think it's a it's a it's a it's a degree of self awareness, and it honestly I think is is you know you talk about you know having been sober for a while that's something you are having to be intentional about every single day, sure, and that in and of itself is a kind of gift because, and the reason I call it a gift is that there are a lot of people who go through life not being intentional about anything and you, you hit a certain age and you go, hold, what, what have I done? Right. What am I doing here? What I, I have, I just thought it would be a certain way forever. And then life is just going to smacks you in the face as it does all of us at some point. And you haven't had those moments of reflection, moments where you count your blessings, moments where you go, you know what? I was a certain way for a long time and I'm going to consciously not be that way because it produces this goodness, not only right. in my life, but in those around me. Yeah, it's and it honestly, I don't think I've had more moments. I mean, obviously, I had that moment when I quit drinking when I was like 31. But I've had more of those moments in my 40s where I kind of go, oh, I I chose to because you you do go through life and you sort of feel led through life. And this idea of intention is really interesting because I think. Look, things happen that people cannot control. Yes. And so that's not to say that you can fix every problem in your life. But I would challenge people to say that there is a percentage of things that are the result of intentions that you have expressed that mm. you may not even be aware of were yeah. intentions or choices that you that you made or intentions you had expressed. And so how do we 
become aware of that, be comfortable with that, forgive ourselves mm. of things that we regret doing and learn from it and take responsibility. Mm. You know, how do we move on to take responsibility? That's the big question. But the fact of asking the question, I think, is the is really the beginning, you know, and that is also, that's, that's also to do with growing up. My kids are going to listen to this podcast and be like, Daddy, are you okay? I think they would have turned it off by now. <laughs> You're probably right. You're probably right. Yeah, I listened to it. Oh, uh, what did I say? I, you know, I, I was skateboarding. I don't know. I don't know what it is. Why, why do I have to know everything? Uh, you're you're, come on, you're, you're old. You you're want? right. They would only be able to endure 15 second sound bites yeah. of of this from an attention point of view. So you're for, you're almost 42. Yes. Can you can you imagine when you were 17 what 42 sounded like when you were 17? It's fucking ancient. I know what it sounds like because my kids let me know exactly oh, what it sounded yeah, like. That's... Dad, you're really old. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know. So um and and by the way, I I'm young, in my opinion, to have, you know, grown teenage kids in, in, in terms of my God, age you get group, to be smug, you know? though, because they're going to be 40, 42 someday and then go, oh. Oh, yeah. And, and honestly, what's oh, really yeah. comforting is like a lot of these questions that we ask our 40s. I feel like when people – I've met people who say like 50s are the best because that's right. where you really start yeah. kind of where everything's kind of firing and you really feel comfortable and you know how you, you know. Right. At least that's what I'm telling myself. Yes. It, it depends on who you're speaking to. <laughs> I guess you know. that's true. I know. If you're, if, you're, if you're with Tom Cruise, then you can see. <laughs> you want to go yourself. jump out of a plane? Exactly. No. You well, can. let's just hold on to it. No. We don't need to hold on to or jump out of a plane. There's a dude who is wearing his 50s well. Um, yeah. You know, but, but you look, there are, there are other people you go, oof. Yeah, I'm not looking forward to that. Well, you can you can make choices about your environment. You can make choice like when you hang a, when you hang around when your core group of the people surrounding you are toxic. Mm. It's going to have an effect. I mean, we you know it's just like the the baggage carrying through the flea market of life. You know, like if right. you're around a lot of crazy baggage, it's going to spill onto on you. And so, at what point do you make the conscious decision to say, I want to? create the i want to manifest things and be around things that i want to achieve or that i want to to see happen in in my life yeah yeah a hundred percent i mean you know look in terms of in, in terms of the film in terms of of what you just said there is very much something that was top of mind for me in in gringo is this you know this guy harold schoenka what does he actually want you know so many Terrible things are happening to him. And he has to sort of confront the fact that he's been living a lie. Yep. And so if that's the case, what's the truth? What's the truth of him? What's the truth of what he wants? What's the truth of what he's been told mm-hmm. he, should, he should want out of life? And that, to me, is the spine of that character of, okay, you're going to have the crap beat out of you for two <laughs> hours of this movie. Um, at the end of it, what, what, what are you going to do with all of those, those, those bruises? And, you know, thankfully, in the film, you know, we, we get a, a satisfying answer. Yes, but, you know, I... I've... I think that that it even goes a little bit deeper in the fact that he's, he, I think like his character and like most people 
don't know what they want. Right. They just kind of have this amorphous idea of something. I want yes. something. Yes. But not. Yes. And it is through this pain that he experiences that he becomes aware exactly. of, what, of what he wants. So, exactly. you know, in a sense, it, pain can be a gift. Pain yeah. for him was a gift. Not to trivialize it, but losing a parent. Pain is a gift. Yes. Because yeah. it does... It does awaken you in some ways, and it does create clarity and help you to understand who, who am I? What do I want? Well, how mm. can I get those? You know, like, how, is that going to make me happy? How do I, on top of that, become a good citizen of the world? So it's a, you know, it, it for, for a film that is, like, really funny, like a dark comedy, right. there's some really, you know, like, to, to talk about it this way, like, oh, yeah, that's, that's, that is life's struggle yeah. is what this guy is going through yeah. in figuring out what it is that he wants. Absolutely. Have and, you figured it out? Oh, gosh. I, I, I don't know about that. I think it's what you just said. You... You figure some things out or you have a notion of what you want to do. And then life throws you curveballs that show you yourself and hopefully sometimes show you your better self and show you your not so good self. And then you make you you sort of recalibrate you you reboot on the basis of some of those buffetings that life throws at you. But I think if at your core you know, as is absolutely the case with Harold, you know, the thing that he cannot, takes too long in some ways to reconcile with is that not everyone is good. And so he is constantly being confronted by bad behavior that makes him go, why did you do that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> he, just, he just can't understand why someone who he thought was one thing is another thing. And, and there is something beautiful about that. But then you know, I, I think one of the th- hardest things about life is the fact that you are constantly trying to not go through life with armor on mm-hmm. so that you stop feeling. But if you don't have some armor on, you may just get split right down the Of course, the of course. And it's the juxtaposition of those two things that is, I think, one of the toughest things to navigate through life it's like falling in love you know how does my heart supple enough that i can let someone in but aware enough that i just don't get my heart obliterated every time i entertain the idea of falling in love and i think the only way of doing that is to try and gain wisdom through the painful things so that you can see things coming early right our dude harold does not see things early (laughs) um he's reacting to a lot of things quite late and we see him start to you know take the reins of his own life a bit as the uh, as the movie progresses yeah and it and ultimately it does sort of get to that idea because the idea of contri- the idea of contribution doesn't mean you shouldn't make yourself happy you shouldn't follow things that you're passionate about but it's like how do you how do you do that in a, in a way that is you know, complimentary to the world. But it was, I mean, it, that Gringo was super fun. It, it was it come out March? Um, March 9th. March 9th on yeah. Amazon. Yeah. And, uh, you and know. It, well, it's in theaters and it's being in distributed by STX. So it's not just uh, streaming on Amazon. It's in theaters all across the country. Oh, yeah. Oh, STX. That Oh, this makes a lot of sense because Charlto Copley's in it. Yes. And Charlto has probably one of the best American accents. He is great. He's his accent is so you know, sometimes you can sort of 
if with so, if someone's British or Australian, you can. It's usually a lilt on the R at the end of a word, right? Like curling the R around, right? But he does this accent in the film that's like, fuck, that guy's like, yeah. I've, I know who that guy is. I know, I know. I would never know he's South African if I didn't know that he is South African. Yeah, yeah, he's amazing in the film. Um, and then, uh, but then you're also in a, in a Cloverfield movie that's coming out very soon, which I I'm am. excited about. I am, I am. Is it still called God Particle, or is it just like the untitled Cloverfield? It's not, it's not going to be called God Particle. Um, Cloverfield, uh, I am pretty sure, will figure in, in, the, in the title in some way. Um, but... That was a ride. I mean, that was just an incredible thing to be a part of. And I, gen- I genuinely cannot wait till the point where I'm no longer muzzled in relation <laughs> to the sheer uh, levels of excitement. It's a lot of pressure. You can't talk movie. about it. No, you can't talk about it. But I can talk about the fact that it is it is worthy of the anticipation. It is worthy of, you know, all the chatter. And, and you know, we just do some crazy stuff in and then movie. chaos walking is another thing that yeah. is this coming out too i mean yeah. there's some good you've got that's kind of fun the anticipation of like oh you know what's coming out yeah and you yeah. know what's in it oh my goodness we had a great time doing that doug lyman is a favorite of mine yeah. as a director and so yeah you know that that's not for another year or so but boy that was a lot of fun you know riding horses in the future is uh, is pretty cool um and uh and yeah that, that was that was great, and then I have this film also coming out later in the year. <clears throat> it's currently called Only You, but it's uh, for Blumhouse, uh-huh. and uh, and it's a it's a it's a kind of a psychological thriller that is just badass. I mean, it's so great. Storm Reed, um, who's the lead in Wrinkle in Time, is, yep. is um, plays my niece in it, and it's a it's a kind of a mind bending. Um, thriller, which I'm also incredibly excited about. Fantastic. And so just b- bouncing off that idea of exci- what you're excited about, is there anything in general, it doesn't even have to be work-related, but what are you... Because, listen, I, there, there, you don't have to go very far to feel like <clears throat> the world is a toxic place and we're all going to fucking die at any minute. Right. right. Uh, <laughs> and so I, I, do, I do really strongly believe that sometimes we forget that that is part of the story, but it's not the entire story. Mm-hmm. That there still are hopeful things and there still are things to be excited about. So what's something you're excited about right now? About anything? Is there anything in, in particular that you sort of keep, keeps hope alive for you? Yeah, there is. You know, my industry, the film industry, um, for a long time has paid lip service to representation as it pertains to people of color and women, <clears throat> marginalized groups, Um And I actually feel hopeful that we are now in a moment from which the pendulum will not swing all the way back, Mm -hmm. especially as it pertains to sexual harassment. I think that the, the, what has been allowed to be pervasive and turned a blind eye to, um, will no longer return. There is always, there are always going to be people who are going to be- behave badly, but I feel like the levels of tolerance have diminished so much that um, it's going to be a safer place for people to work. And not only that, but the images that we put out into the world are going to start reflecting the fact that we have had to question our morality as it pertains to how we treat each other along gender lines, along racial lines. Um, 
you know, there are films coming out, there are people making those films, there are people behind the camera, there are people in front of the camera, and hopefully what will catch up is the people who are greenlighting the decisions mm -hmm. as to who and what, uh, who gets to be in films, what gets to be made, what narratives are told, what stories are told, and how they are told, uh, how women are represented, how um, the objectification of women, the marginalization of people of color, the sidelining of, of people um, <clears throat> who are disabled, you know, all of these things that Hollywood, the entertainment industry generally, is so influential from a cultural point of view. And the more we are cleaning house internally in terms of business practices, the more it will manifest in what we put out into the world. And that is now something, if you'd asked me a year ago, you know, because I've worked with a lot of female directors and I always get asked, do I think that things have changed? And a year ago, I would say, no, I think we're in a blip. I think we're in an upswing, maybe. I think we're in a moment where people are aware of it. But what we have seen historically is that we get talked out and then things remain the same. And, and I actually kind of feel optimistic right now that my children, based on the moment we're in now, will be living in a slightly different world than I have been living in up until now. Excellent. That is an amazing way to end this. This has been such a great conversation. I can't thank you enough for coming. Coming to my house. Uh, <laughs> please come over anytime. Bring the kids. There's a pool. Uh, you may regret that. Throw them in the pool. <laughs> we'll play video games. No, this was fun. Thank you <laughs> Excellent. So thank you so much, David. Good to see you. Enjoy your burrito, everyone. Thank you. ID 10T scanning complete. Enjoy your burrito. Hey, it's Guy Raz here, the host of How I Built This, a podcast that gives you a front row seat to how some of the biggest products were built and the innovators, entrepreneurs, and idealists behind them. Every week, I speak to someone new, stories like Justin Wolverton's, a lawyer who just wanted a healthy alternative to ice cream, so he created Halo Top in his Cuisinart. Or Todd Graves, who grew his fried chicken restaurant Raising Cane's into one of the most successful fast food chains in the U.S. All of these great conversations can help you learn how to think big, take risks, and navigate crises in life and work from people who've done all of that and more. Follow How I Built This on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free Right now on Wondery Plus.